Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Counsel Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For this week's update on the law, we'll cover the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces decision in United States v. Schmidt which generated three separate opinions and no real answer to the central question in the case. After working through that mess of an opinion, our focus on advocacy will look at the introduction of learned treatises. Before we get to the takeaways of the Schmidt opinion, let's tee up the issues and the dividing lines among the five judges. At the heart of the case was a prosecution for a lewd act under Article 120b-c for intentionally committing indecent conduct in the presence of a child. The key language for purposes of this appeal was the statutory requirement that the act be in the presence of a child, a phrase that the court had never interpreted before, at least not in this new statute. The in the presence of language was at issue because at trial, the defense argued that the appellant could not be guilty if the child was not aware that the indecent conduct was occurring. The specification itself did not specifically allege the child was aware of the conduct. It simply alleged that the appellant masturbated in the presence of the child and that it was intentionally done in the presence of the child. Prior to trial, the appellant had waived his rights and admitted to investigators that he had masturbated under a blanket to help him fall asleep and agreed with the investigator's suggestion that he thought the child was asleep when he did so. At trial, the 15-year-old child, who the calf referred to as Jared, testified that he was pretending to be asleep, but was aware of the appellant masturbating. The defense argued, consistent with the appellant's pretrial statements, that the appellant did not commit a crime because he masturbated under cover of a blanket and with the mistaken belief that Jared was asleep and unaware. Despite making this argument, the defense did not request a mistake-of-fact instruction, and no such instruction was given. Consistent with the military judge's bench book, the trial judge proposed instructions that included the element that the indecent conduct must be conducted, quote, in the presence of, end of quote, the child, but did not include any tailored instruction regarding whether the child had to be aware of the conduct in order to satisfy the element. Upon reviewing the instructions, the defense counsel affirmatively stated that he had no objection to the instructions and did not request any tailored instructions. As stated in his closing argument, defense counsel argued that for conduct to be in the presence of a child, the child must have been aware of the conduct. The defense argued that the child was not aware of it, and even if he was aware of it, the appellant reasonably believed he was asleep and was therefore unaware of his conduct. The defense's argument apparently held some sway because the members, in trying to reconcile the argument with the instructions, submitted a question to the military judge about what in the presence of meant. 
The trial judge proposed simply restating the benchbook definition of lewd act and advising the members to use their own common sense understanding as to the meaning of in the presence, or in the presence of. When asked if he had any objection to that proposed way ahead, the defense counsel said, quote, I do not, sir. There is no definition in the bench book. End of quote. I will circle back on this later, but hopefully you are picking up that the defense counsel really should have requested a mistake of fact instruction and requested tailored instructions that were consistent with the defense's theory, specifically that in the presence of means not only physical proximity, but also an awareness by the child that the conduct is occurring or has just occurred. So with all of this, there were three issues identified by the CAF. First, the fundamental question of what in the presence of means, so that determine whether or not the member's instructions were deficient. Second, whether the defense waived any issue regarding the instructions by, not, by affirmatively stating that he had no objections to the instruction given and by not requesting a mistake of fact or tailored instruction on the meaning of in the presence of. And third, whether defense counsel provided ineffective assistance of counsel by failing to object to the instructions, request the mistake of fact instruction, and failing to propose an instruction on in the presence of that was consistent with his argument to the members. A quick note about that last issue. Ineffective assistance of counsel presents a tough standard for an appellant to meet, but you'll see it raised in cases like this where there is a decent argument that the issue had been waived. That's because if the court finds waiver, there is nothing to correct and the court will not speak to the issue at all. Thus, it is better to have an uphill battle through the test for ineffective assistance of counsel than no battle at all due to waiver. The outcome in this case is that, like the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals below, the appellant lost and remains convicted of the offense. But the judges were so divided in how they reached that result that it is not easy to see the controlling law that comes out of the case. To understand why, you have to look at the opinions through the lens of Marx v. United States, 430 U.S. 188. That's a 1977 Supreme Court case that guides what to do when you don't have a majority opinion, which is what happened in Schmidt with its 1, 2, and 2 opinion. Judge Sparks, writing for just himself but announcing the judgment of the court, said that there was no waiver under the earlier precedent of United States v. Davis, which is 79 MJ 329, and that was because the law regarding the meaning of in the presence of was unsettled. In Judge Sparks' opinion, in the presence of does require the child to be aware of the conduct. In addition, Judge Sparks found that the appellant had not waived the issue by failing to object to the instructions because the law was unsettled, essentially holding that when the law is unsettled, any failure to object will not be considered a knowing waiver. However, because there was no objection, the improper instruction was reviewed under the plain error standard and, similar to the waiver issue, Judge Sparks found that because the law as to the meaning of in the presence of was unsettled, it could not be plain error to fail to instruct on it. In turn, it could also not be ineffective assistance of counsel. Chief Judge Olson, joined by Senior Judge Erdman, joined Judge Sparks in finding that there was no waiver, but he came to an opposite answer on the in the presence of question, finding that the child does not need to be aware of the conduct for it to be a crime. Thus, the instruction was not in error and there was no IAC. Finally, Judge Maggs, joined by Judge Hardy, found waiver even though the law was unsettled. Regarding IAC, Judge Maggs and Hardy agreed with the NMCCA, which held that even if the defense counsel was ineffective, the appellant could not establish prejudice. 
Judge Maggs did not say one way or the other whether in the presence of requires awareness on the part of the victim. Boiling all that down, that's three judges who found the appellant did not waive the instructional error issue by affirmatively agreeing to the instruction versus two judges who did find waiver. We also have two judges who say in the presence of would not require the child to be aware of the indecent conduct versus one judge who would and two judges who declined to weigh in. Finally, we have one judge who found no ineffective assistance of counsel because the error was neither plain nor obvious, two judges who found no ineffective assistance of counsel because there was no error, and two judges who assumed defective performance but found no prejudice. So there is no answer as to the main question of whether in the presence of requires awareness on the part of the child. The only holding that has a majority of the court is that there was no waiver because the law was unsettled. Under the Supreme Court's Marks decision, in a case like this, you're supposed to create a Venn diagram of sorts to find the narrowest ground upon which a majority of the court agree in support of the judgment, and that controls. However, as noted in opinions such as King v. Palmer, 950 F. 2nd, 771, which is a 1992 case from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, that whole framework of the Venn diagram falls apart in cases like this one where there is no narrowest ground on which to find a case dispositive holding. Thus, what you have is simply a bunch of persuasive authorities. And that's basically what you have here in the Schmidt case. Here, the only thing a majority agreed on is that there was no waiver. That, of course, is preliminary to the central issue and does nothing to support the court's judgment which was to affirm the conviction. So what are the takeaways from this case for trial practitioners? Well, there are three, or at least three. First and foremost, whether in the presence of requires a child to be aware of the conduct remains an open question. Therefore, if you are defending a case where the child was unaware of the indecent conduct, you should craft and argue for a tailored instruction with Judge Sparks' opinion and with the Navy Marine Corps court below as persuasive authorities. Chief Judge Olson's opinion even gives you all of the counter-arguments for which you will need to prepare. The second takeaway from Schmidt is that, from this point forward, failure to object to the instruction as given, or to request tailored instructions on the meaning of in the presence of, will likely result in waiver. Three of the five judges found there was no waiver in Schmidt based on the fact that the law was unsettled. It hadn't been spoken to. But what the CAF has now done is identify the issue and the appellate courts will likely be hostile to defense counsel who fail to do the same now, now that CAF has at least spoken to it. If there's case law on an issue and you do not raise it, but instead say no objection multiple times, it will result in a finding of waiver. So, somewhat ironically, the one issue the three judges agreed upon in this case, that there was no waiver, will likely not happen again on this issue. The third takeaway is, is to be mindful of the options available to you when you are dealing with unsettled questions in the law related to the elements of an offense. If there is no law on the subject, you can argue what the law is, or should be, with a proposed tailored instruction, which you should get on the record in a written request, or at least in an Article 39a session. That's especially true if the members do what they did here. They specifically highlighted the issue with a question. Requesting a tailored instruction may just help you win your case. And even if it doesn't, it will help preserve the issue for appeal and get a better standard of review if your client is convicted. Specifically, the abuse of discretion standard. 
Failure to request an appropriate instruction, as this case demonstrates, will likely result in you losing, either on the issue of waiver or, if not, under a plain error analysis. This case really drives home a training point that we hit on in all of our advocacy training, and that is to look at potential instructions early and often so as to see how your theory of the case aligns with the law and potential gaps in the law. Where you can help frame the law to better address the facts in your case, consistent with your case strategy, you greatly increase the chances of winning at trial and on appeal. Okay, turning to this week's advocacy focus, we're going to talk about the admissions of learned treatises. Let's start with the rule itself. Military Rule of Evidence 80318, like its federal counterpart, provides a hearsay exception for statements in learned treatises, periodicals, or pamphlets. To keep things simple, I'll refer to all of these documents under the heading of learned treatises. Despite its hearsay nature, a party may introduce statements in a learned treatise so long as it is for a proper purpose and the treatise is sufficiently reliable. Under the rule, there are only two proper purposes for a learned treatise. Either you're using it to cross-examine an expert, or you're using it on direct examination of an expert because that expert relied on it. Reliability requires one of three things. One, the expert who is testifying admits that the learned treatise you are using is a reliable authority. Two, some other expert testifies that the learned treatise is a reliable authority. Or three, the judge takes judicial notice that the proffered learned treatise is a reliable authority. Now that we've covered what the rule itself says, let's run through three primary questions that generally come up when you're thinking about using a learned treatise. Those questions are, first, what actually counts as a learned treatise? Second, what practical considerations should I be thinking about to get a learned treatise admitted? And third, how do you actually use the learned treatise at trial? Taking up what actually counts as a learned treatise, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in its 1994 decision in United States v. Coleman, 41 MJ 46, made clear that mere publication alone does not suffice. The fact that the statements were included in a book, magazine, journal, or online is not enough. The attorney attempting to use the treatise must establish, either through an expert witness or by judicial notice, that the treatise or journal or website or whatever, is a reputable authority on the subject matter. It has to be authoritative in whatever field of expertise is at issue. You'll get some help identifying learned treatises from your own expert. Generally, you're looking for something that was written by professionals, for professionals, and relied on by professionals in the particular field. They will most often be peer-reviewed prior to publication. So let's turn now to the practical considerations involved when laying a foundation for a learned treatise. The most basic method is to simply ask the expert to lay the proper foundation, demonstrating that the treatise is a reliable authority. You do this using questions like whether the expert is familiar with the learned treatise, whether the text is peer-reviewed prior to publication, how the expert is familiar with the work, whether the learned treatise is reliable, and how the learned treatise is used in the field relevant to your case. Now, here's a wrinkle to think about. Let's say you're litigating a child abuse case and you want to cross-examine the prosecution's expert using a learned treatise, but you anticipate the prosecution's expert will not recognize the text as a reliable authority, or the expert is unfamiliar with it and can't speak to its reliability. What do you do? Well, here are three options you may want to consider. Option one, Review potential learned treatises with the government's expert prior to trial. 
If there are multiple potential learned treatises that make the point you are speaking to or seeking to bring out, consider going through each of them with the prosecution's expert, even if the expert disputes the authority of some of the treatises, so long as the expert agrees that one is a reliable authority, you have your source ready for trial. Option two, get the treatise recognized as authoritative by someone other than the prosecution's expert. While Rule 803.18 gives you the option of judicial notice, in our hypothetical, there is some disagreement about whether the text at issue is truly a reputable authority, so it is unlikely the court will take judicial notice. Therefore, you are more likely looking at calling your own expert. Assuming that you are not calling your own expert for substantive testimony to educate the fact finder or present expert testimony at trial, you may want to handle this in an Article 39A session where you seek to just pre-admit the learned treatise. Alternatively, you could take it up by calling your expert during trial for the limited purpose of establishing that the text is a reliable authority. One advantage of admitting the treatise using a pretrial motion is that the government may call its expert to dispute the authoritative value of the treatise, which could give you a forecast of how the expert's testimony is going to go during trial on the merits. Relating back to the case we discussed, Schmidt, if you do lay a foundation for the treatise in an Article 39a, consider asking the judge for a tailored instruction that explains to the members that the statements from the treatise have been admitted into evidence for the truth of the matter asserted in the statements. You can request that instruction be provided both when you take up this evidence during your cross-examination of the government's expert, as well as in findings instructions at the end of trial on the merits. The third option is to play hardball with the prosecution's expert. There is an article written by a plaintiff's attorney in Michigan, Steve Gorin, that specifically discusses cross-examining with learned treatises. The article is available on the Michigan Bar website, and a copy has been posted to SharePoint. Mr. Gorin's article gives some examples of the questions that you might want to ask when the expert is reluctant to recognize the treatise as a reputable authority. The questions are along the lines of, have you heard of this text? Do you own it? Can you tell me about the authors who wrote it and their credentials? How do their credentials compare to your own credentials? What happens in the editorial review before a book or article like this can be published? What are the credentials of the editors? Is this text for the general public? Is it to educate a particular field? Is it in libraries specific to that field? The general idea is that these questions will at least hint at the reliability of the treatise while also undermining the credibility of the government's expert if they continue to refuse to acknowledge that the treatise is a reputable authority within the field. If the expert refuses to yield, you still have option two of calling your own expert, just as we discussed. Notice that style-wise, Mr. Gorin recommends using open-ended questions for learned treatises rather than a leading uh, cross-examination style of questioning. Whether you choose to do so will likely depend on your level of understanding of the treatise, the publication, and the field of study. As we discuss in our trainings, retaining an expert is similar to retaining a tutor. They do not do the work for you so much as help educate you so that you can truly understand the expert's testimony and put it in context. Okay, let's assume that you have established the learned treatise as a reliable authority. How do you use the thing? Well, the rule states that, quote, if admitted, the statement may be read into evidence but not received as an exhibit, end of quote. So, for example, you can hand the learned treatise to the expert on the stand and have them read the text that you want read out loud, 
Alternatively, it would seem that you could have the learned treatise admitted as an exhibit, but you would not be able to publish it to the fact finder. You would simply read it to the members, similar to a stipulation of expected testimony. And again, whether the witness is reading the text or whether you do it yourself, you will want the court to educate the members that the statement is being offered for the truth of the matter asserted in the statement. In United States v. Witt, the government used a PowerPoint that contained the statement from a learned treatise when questioning the witness. In this way, the trial counsel arguably published the learned treatise to the members. The Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals held that reading the statement to the expert and showing the statement to the expert and the members was, quote, a distinction without a difference because the information would have been in front of the members in either case, end of quote. The problem in that case was that trial counsel included statements from the learned treatise that the expert did not speak to, and therefore had not been admitted. As I read it, the lesson from wit is that you can be creative in how you communicate the learned treatise to the members, but if you display the statement, you need to be sure that you discuss it in its entirety with the expert so that it is properly admissible. Once the text is in and you're using it on direct examination with your own expert, the government may object if you seek to also admit a statement from a learned treatise that says exactly the same thing that your expert just testified to. The government may object, asserting MRE 403, specifically that the evidence is cumulative and perhaps misleading insofar as it appears to be two opinions in agreement when it may simply be one opinion adopted by the expert. However, that should not stop you from admitting the statements to establish some consensus on certain points in a field that your expert can then expand on to the fact finder. That might help boost your expert's credibility for when you reach argument, because it makes clear that your expert is not an outlier or a hired gun. On cross-examination, you are using a learned treatise to attack the expert's testimony and demonstrate that the government's expert's opinion is an outlier and therefore unreliable. You can tee up the expert's point, then ask the expert to read the learned treatise. At that point, you can move on and just point out the disagreement or the conflict in their opinions later in your findings argument. Alternatively, you can test whether the expert now thinks he or she got something wrong, which could give you a win at that point when it comes time to argue. However, that's generally going to be rare. On cross-examination, much more so than on direct examination, you really need to understand the learned treatise. Oftentimes, experts may try to mischaracterize the statement, take it out of context, or attempt to provide a narrative that might sound like an answer, but really, they just took a long walk around it. You need to have a command of the field such that you recognize what they are attempting to do so that you can use the correct terms and steer the expert back to the statement at issue. When it works, it can be really powerful. Depending on the importance of the area of expertise to the case, Testing witnesses through learned treatises can basically turn into what you see with many other expert issues, a battle of credentials, including those of the learned treatises' authors and editors. The learned treatise can essentially put highly qualified experts on your trial team. Well, that wraps up what we have to say about learned treatises this week. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. 
I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know It won't be long and they'll be happy to know That you saw me go, I was